Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh delivers a very important message on the subject of the family. In this sermon, the argument is made that the family might very well be our most important mission field. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6 as Pastor Josh delivers his sermon titled, Family Flourishing for the Glory of God. All right, Ephesians chapter 6, last uh, message in this brief uh, time away from the book of Romans. Lord willing, next Sunday we're going to be back in the book of Romans. So last one today, Ephesians chapter 6. Let's read verses 1 through 4 and then we'll pray. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Please bow with me. Lord God in heaven, Father, we come to you on another Lord's day, looking to your word because we want more of you. We wanna know you, we wanna see your glory. Father, we, we long for more of that great pleasure of coming nearer to you. But we also, oh God, want things to happen in our lives because we just flat want our lives to please you. God, we're living for that day that we stand before you and we wanna hear your pleasure in us. We wanna hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. We long for that reward. We long to see you delight in us for the obedience that we've given. We want to use our lives and not waste our lives. And so God, to that end, we wanna be transformed. We wanna obey. We wanna die to sin. We wanna move further in this growth in Christ. We wanna be made holy. We want every single aspect of our lives to please you. We do not want there to be one area of our lives that is at war with you. We want all of it to be in submission. And as we have been thinking through matters of marriage, family, sexuality, singleness, Father, help us in this this morning that the truths that we look at, oh God, Father, you will show us with clarity. I need a thousand different graces so that when I teach here, oh God, it's done in a way that's useful and doesn't throw mud on the diamonds of your word. And I pray God that you'll help me to carry your food to your people without dropping the tray to be faithful. And Lord, I pray that all of us, oh God, will hear your word rightly, that we will meet it with faith. We will heed, we will respond, we will obey. Lord, and even in some of those ways where when we hear preaching and, and you by your spirit bring more application even than what's said, I pray that'll happen today. Please bless and protect this time. We ask all this through the name of Christ. Amen. Several years back, I was at a pastor's conference and it sold out at 10,000 men. And yes, this is a story I've told before, but Jesus also told some parables multiple times. So I feel justified in doing the same. But at the beginning of the conference, they did a, a little bit of crowd interaction kind of as a test. And what they started to do is uh, kind of work through these ways of how did you come to faith in Christ? And they started with some of these ways that, you know, are the least effective. So they started with something like, if you heard the gospel and came to trust in Christ and be saved through street preaching, would you stand up? No, out of a crowd of 10,000, as you can imagine, there were not very many at all. I mean, I mean, maybe four or five in that great big conference center stood up. And then he had them sit down. And then he began to walk through some of these other ways that, that we do ministry and we do evangelism, but we know that they're not the most effective. Like for instance, if you came to faith in Christ, you, you were saved through reading a tract, would you stand up? Well, you know, in all of those scenarios, not very many people stood up. And then there came a moment where he said this, if you came to salvation through hearing the, the gospel for the first time in a sermon, would you stand up? Well, at that moment, this is, this is whenever I stood up out of my seat and I thought 
that, that there would be this moving moment when everybody in the whole stand stood up. And I thought they were going to make a big, a big point about the importance of preaching. I mean, this is, a, this is a pastor's conference for crying out loud. And I was kind of surprised when I stood and only about 2,000 others with me stood. I was genuinely dumbfounded. I was legitimately confused. And I looked around at about 8,000 men still sitting. And in my mind, I go, well, how did these guys come to faith? And before I could even conjecture, he had us sit down. And then, and then the men said these words. If you came to faith in Christ primarily because your mom and dad sharing the gospel with you, would you stand up? And I tell you, it was a moving moment that gave me chills as a room of 8,000 men stood all at one time. The point being made there was unmistakable. Christians, pastors are the ones who do most of the formal teaching. We're the ones who stand before you dressed up all nice, Sunday after Sunday. But listen, we're not the ones leading the most people to Christ. And I'm glad about that. We're not the ones leading most souls to Christ, and that is by God's design. The weight of significance that God has placed on the family is hard to overemphasize. We, we could, but it's hard to. For you who've been blessed by God with children, you have an incredibly weighty calling from God. It's a calling that's not easy. It's a calling that's not even all the way easy to understand. Now, a lot of times people think that it is. And if we're just being honest, a lot of times the idea of raising a family God's way just consists of throw out some of those little cliches that maybe politicians on their campaign trails throw out there to try to pretend they're family men. The family that prays together stays together. And any other thing you can fit on a coffee mug. I'm not saying I don't agree with maybe some of those kinds of sentiments. But actually what God has to say on the calling of a family is so big, so full, that a lot of times cultural Christianity doesn't even recognize it. Doesn't even know that this is what the Bible says. The expectations that God communicates to, to Christian moms and dads concerning their children is big. And it is a calling that if done in the way God tells us to, will be nothing short of exhausting. Requiring a great deal of planning. A great deal of wisdom and thinking through how are we going to do some of these kinds of things. <coughs> We could take years to study it, still wouldn't cover it. I could start a sermon series right now where 50 Sundays a year, I preached on the family and in several years, I still couldn't cover all that God has to say on this subject. What God has to say on how to obey him in this requires a kind of obedience that let's be honest, a lot of times folks don't want to see and don't want to believe. At times it's complex but it is always brilliant, always genius. But God calls us to give an intentional kind of effort. So this morning in a one sermon message on the family, I will not be able, even in an overview way, to cover all of the truths. But what I want to try to do is give a, a bit of a snapshot, like if you were to take the biblical instruction and re reduce it down to one picture, so that from that, maybe we could understand the direction and the sentiment of scriptures. That's what I want to try to do this morning in an overview kind of way. And I want to do it in about three parts. So if you're taking notes, here's, here's the first one. Let's start with the great goal. The chief end of the family is the same as the chief end of man. Now, what do we mean by that language, okay? The, using what is the chief end that may not be language that you use in an everyday uh, kind of setting. What we're asking though in that is what is the point? What is the goal at the end that we're working for? What's the purpose? Why am I here? Why has God made me? Why has God made the family? The Bible answers that question. In fact, it's a consistent message from Genesis to Revelation all the way through. The purpose of your individual life is the same as God's purpose for your family. 
The Bible shows that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That message of enjoy Him, what that means is to come to know Him. And as you come to know the living God, you will come to love Him because He's glorious. There's no one who has ever come to know God who did not be in all of Him and worship Him and love Him. That is God's purposes for you as an individual. And that is God's purpose for the family. That's God's purpose for God. All that God does, he does to display his glory, glorify his name. Our lives are to be oriented around glorifying him, knowing him. And the aim of the family is the same. The great aim is a Christ-centered home. A God-glorifying home. A household where the family lives with a purpose and everybody knows about that purpose because we talk about it. It's oriented around like planets orbiting the sun, orbiting around obedience and service and knowing God. It's gospel saturated. It's filled with an atmosphere of grace and joy, patience and purpose. The words of God are on everyone's lips. Speaking the truths of God is as natural as talking about any other subject. It's a place where obedience to God's law is expected. A household where hypocrisy is despised and it's fought against. It's a household where every decision is made with the underlying understanding we exist for the pleasure of God. It's a place where family worship is regular. And by the way, family worship is something that is for households regardless of the age of children and regardless of whether the children are even there. The idea that we would only do family worship while children are in the house, that kind of operates with that idea that religion is only for children, which is a pagan kind of idea. A Christ-centered household is one where worship is a regular a part of our lives. It's a household where our schedules revolve around him a place where our budget revolves around him, a place where our thoughts revolve around him, a household where every member can tell you why we exist because it's something we speak of often, a household where the world and angels can look in and see the wise and orderly design of God. There's a difference between existing and flourishing. There's a difference between having kids and then training, equipping, raising kids. There's a difference between a marriage where the husband and wife are mostly just roommates who tolerate each other to God-centered marital joy. The great end is the everlasting joy of every soul in the family. And we all know where to find that everlasting joy. We walk in to the door of grace. We come into access to our eternal joy by the blood of Christ. That Christ offered himself and that by turning from our sins, trusting in Christ to be saved, embracing Christ, we walk into the door of access to eternal joy. But from there, we're not done. From there, we continue to strive to find our exceeding fullness of everlasting joy. And we know that we're not going to find it in things of the earth, wealth and possessions that in the end are going to burn and mean nothing. It is found in the God of joy. And every member of the family knows how to follow him. This is God's goal for us. This is God's aim for the family. Christian, the great goal is generations of followers. Sometimes parents take a read of Psalm 78 and look at how God describes what he desires of generation after generation after generation of followers. Friends, this has every bit as much to do with a message on the Great Commission as it does about the family. And if you'll let me say something hard, I'm going to have some hard things to say today. I won't always do it gracefully, but I do want you to consider this. If Christians in America 
had only made disciples of their children, nobody else, only their children, Christianity in America would not be in decline, it would be flourishing. But what is sad is obedience to the Great Commission, even at step one, which is make disciples in the home, evangelism, nurturing training in the home has largely been neglected. And, and let, me, let me tell you, it is also happening in gospel preaching churches. One of the reasons why I think that statistic is there is because, all right, we all know a large percentage of those who claim faith in Christ are not actually converted Christians. But what I also wanna tell you is these kinds of neglects are also happening in Bible teaching, gospel preaching churches. Let it not be so amongst us. The command to train children, to raise them up, has largely been neglected while our enemy laughs. If you are a parent, doing family life right is going to cost. It is going to cost an incredible kind of effort, a kind of effort of mental exertion, spiritual energy, physical energy exerted. It's going to at times cost giving up promotions, which would be alluring. But if it takes me away from my calling to the family, then I must say no. It's going to cost. God calls us to something big. Let's move on to point number two as we consider some of the specifics involved. As we look at the text here in Ephesians uh, 6, Verses one through four, I'm, I'm going a, a bit out of order here in an overview kind of way. I'm going to begin with the calling to parents and then move on to children. So I know parents, you will be excited when we get to that children's part. So hang in there, <laughs> keep elbowing your child all through it. If you look at uh, chapter six, verse four again, uh, read the verse with me. And I, I want you to notice, I see five quick truths there that I'm going to point out and we'll spend some time unpacking them. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. L let me just list off very quickly there the five truths that I see there. Number one, fathers are addressed not because it is their sole job to do the work of parenting, other places in scripture show that the work of raising and nurturing uh, children is largely in the role of mothers. We know this, but the father is addressed because as the leader, it is his job to ensure that the godly things are happening. The things that God communicates, it is his job to make sure they're happening, not necessarily to do all of them, but to ensure that it is happening. Secondly, do not provoke them to anger. There's a command to discipline, even within this very verse, but this here is a call to make sure that parents' discipline is not harsh. Children, here's your turn to elbow your parents. We can lean in the saddle too far one direction or another, too soft or too tough and exacting. All of us have a tendency to lean one way or the other. I believe I know which tendency mine is, and I believe my kids could tell you which direction my tendency is. We all have a tendency one direction or the other. God in grace and love for your children gives the command that in our discipline, we are to ensure that we do not push them to harsh places. Number three, there is the call, bring them up. That's the call to raise them. We'll spend time on that one. Number four, discipline them. We'll see that one. Number five, instruct them in the Lord. You see how the Bible can say so much in so few of words. Let's spend some time unpacking some of those things there. Let me start with number three there. The call to bring them up, to raise them. Parents, there's a, dis there's a difference between children treated kind of like cattle, herd them up and shut them up, turn on the TV, give little Johnny a tablet that'll keep him quiet for seven hours. There's a difference between that kind of approach versus intentional effort in raising, training, equipping, growing 
sweating, bleeding for the cause of bringing them good. God calls us to raise and train. Now, there's a great mystery in all of this. Like when we think of the end result and how our children will turn out, there's, a, there's an incredible mystery here. You've got the mystery of the fact that your, your child's own decisions come to play in this. God's at work. Satan's at work. You're at work. The world's influence is at work and your child is making decisions. All of these factors, all of these influences, the great mystery are all accumulating to produce how your child will turn out. You talk about something terrifying. How your child will turn out. It's all of these factors together. There are times where we could look at that and just feel defeated already. Sometimes parents just sort of throw excuses out there of things like, well, you know, kids are going to do what kids are going to do. Basically just to say it doesn't matter, so I'm not going to try when we know that that is absurd. We know that the book of Proverbs tells us train a child, grow up a child in the way that he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That is not a promise or a guarantee that if you do everything to perfection, then you'll produce perfect children. It's not how it works. The book of Proverbs is principles. The Bible is communicating that there is a general principle that raising them in a godly way generally produces godly children. There's a great mystery in all this. But parents, our job is to sweat, bleed, puke, and be willing to die and die daily for the sake of service and for the effort that goes into training and growing them. And here is a principle. It may seem obvious, but our culture doesn't think it's obvious. Children must be trained, meaning they don't come out of the womb fully equipped. Hey, have you ever heard maybe kind of a complaint or maybe you've said it yourself, caught yourself in a moment, oh, that kid has no sense of responsibility. If I say that, I've just insulted myself because they don't come out of the womb with a sense of responsibility, nor a good work ethic, nor these virtues, the things that have to be grown and nurtured. Part of the point that the Bible is teaching is there is an effort that must go into the development of these things. And time and distance has a way of multiplying these kinds of things where there is a lacking in our parenting and there's gonna be after a decade of it, it will become more and more obvious, which is why there is the need for constant examination, constant reading of the scriptures, testing how we're doing against the ways of the Lord. And by the way, as I talk through all of these things, I never want to downplay the role of grandparents, empty nesters, aunts and uncles, church family who are involved. I am so glad that my kids have other influences besides me to check some of my weaknesses and some of the ways I get things wrong. I'm glad there are many influences. We need to understand that as a church family, we do play a part in one another's lives. You all are playing a part in the, in the salvation and discipleship of my children. Let's not take that lightly. Grandparents never undervalue the weight of significance that you have in influence as well. But children must be trained, must be grown, must be raised. Training involves teaching, showing, modeling, forming, correcting, molding, giving opportunities to develop, etc. Training is intentional effort here. And parents, another point that we need to make clear and one that our culture is going a different direction on is, is this. The task of raising and training and equipping and even educating, this does fall on us. It is our responsibility. And, and part of the point I'm trying to make there in that is it's not the school system's job to raise our children. It's not the babysitters, it's not grandmas, it's, it's not societies, and oh dear, it is not the government's job to raise our children. One of the scariest sentences I think that has been uttered in our nation's history, one of the current politicians running for president right now once said in a speech, they say it takes a, 
Say it takes a village to raise a child. I say they're wrong. It takes a government. Whew. You talk about a scary sentence. The idea that the culture has of entrusting our children, turning over our children to the public education system in order to raise them. Listen to me, friends. On the day of judgment, whenever we stand before God, if our children have not been rightly raised and even educated, God's not primarily going to point his finger at the education system. It's going to fall on us. Now, we choose to delegate some of those things, but we also need to realize a lot of things. Every form of how we educate, they have advantages and disadvantages. If you choose to send your child to public school, and I'm not knocking that, our family does as well. We do a mix of the homeschool, public school. We think there's advantages, disadvantages of both. You guys got to figure that out for yourself. But you do need to understand that if you choose to send your children to the public education system, our government, which cannot operate a budget, and is trillions of dollars in debt. That's trillions with a T, dollars of debt, has a large hand in what goes on in the education system. That means there are going to be some shortcomings. That means that there is a need for daily conversations about not only what they're learning formally, but also the influence, the worldview of which looking at the world from these perspectives. But in the end, moms and dads, it is our job. It is our role to ensure that they are being formed and trained in a godly and wise kind of way. Well, part of that raising, come to a second part here, letter B involves correction and discipline. Let's spend a bit of time looking at this one. Listen to some of these verses that scripture has to say in regard to discipline. And if you are uh, new as a Christian parent and not yet gone through some of these studies yet, these are some verses maybe to jot down in your notes. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen says this, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Now listen, Jesus said that the message of the world is always going to be in opposition to the truth of God, to reality, to the way that God has designed and made this world. And man, you can see it here. The world often approaches parenting with the idea that if given the right information, my child will make an informed and wise decision. Ask your average kindergarten teacher what they think of that idea. Parent, your child is wonderful made in the image of God, has incredible worth and their life has sacred value. They are fearfully and wonderfully made, but your child is also fallen and hear me very carefully. Your child is not naturally good. Your child is a natural born sinner. Your child will not naturally do what is right. Your child will naturally rebel against God and your child is not naturally wise. Your child is naturally foolish, just as you and I were and may still be and still wrestle with even as mature Christians. My friends, it means this. Parents are to provide wisdom and make decisions for children, give correction and discipline. And it is a harmful thing to approach parenting with the idea that I'll leave these major decisions to them to figure out, believing they'll choose the right thing like what they should eat. That is a harmful act. You and I are responsible for bringing our children to do things they don't want to do, but it is for their good. And, and you'll notice this. Sometime if you sit down and you watch some TV with your kids, there's a plot that is in every single one of their little kids shows in every single one of their movies. The plot is this. Children are so wise and intelligent and adults are idiots. And if children could just run the world, it would be a glorious place. That's the plot of like every children's movie. Friends, that, that, is, a, that is a worldview, that is a perspective that is opposed to the scripture. Children are naturally foolish. God calls us to step in and teach wisdom. And another countercultural truth is this. God says that the rod of discipline which is, you know, whatever you call in your home. This is corporal discipline. This is spanking or whipping, whatever in your household you called it. It is a tool that teaches wisdom. It's not the only tool. It's not the only way we teach. 
but it is a necessary tool. Stop believing the world that it's abuse. It is not. Next passage, Proverbs 13, 24 says this, he who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. So listen, friends, the Bible doesn't simply give you permission to discipline your children and specifically to do so with physical discipline. It is saying that if you don't, you do not love your child. Now, many recoil at that kind of thing, and, and many would argue and say, well, the reason I don't is because I love them. But the Bible is teaching you a perspective here that, yes, is opposed to the world. Love is doing what is best for your child. If your child had some sort of a disease and there was a shot that was the remedy, and let's just pretend it was a very painful shot. If a parent refused to administer it because of the fear of the moment or because of the infliction of pain and that child died, that's not love. Love does what is best even when it is difficult and such. The Bible says this, your child needs discipline. And the question to ask is, do you believe God? Because understand this, you're believing somebody. You're believing somebody. When, when people hear that the Bible teaches this and yet they say, I, well, I just can't believe that. Stop for a second. You are believing, you're choosing to believe the popular psychologists of the day. You are saying their wisdom is better than God's wisdom. Kind of hard to submit to scripture with that kind of attitude. The Bible is giving you more than individual truths. The Bible is giving you a worldview. It is based in the depravity of man. It is based in how we have been created and then where we are in the fall. It is based on what we need and what our great remedy is. It's an entire worldview, not simply individual truths. Proverbs 29, 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom. But a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Friends, being spoiled, it is an ugly and shameful thing. And this is another truth that we got to believe. It is harmful to our children. It is harmful to their souls. It's harmful to their joy. It's harmful to their understanding of the gospel. That's another point the Proverbs makes. That actually discipline has a way of helping to save their soul from hell. That's biblical language. Being spoiled is a harm to the soul. To the soul. They're going to be unhappy, lusting narcissists who are never, told, never taught to control their desires. Listen to me very carefully. A spoiled man is incapable of selflessly loving a wife. A spoiled woman, what kind of mother will she be to her children? These have lasting kinds of effects. When we are trained, because... Even if we are not intentionally training our children, understand this, they're getting trained. The world and your enemy is training them. But if we do not train them in the ways of godliness, the world and your enemy is training them in the ways of lust and to be among those who give themselves over to their desires. Proverbs 23 says that the rod helps save them from hell. In exactly the same way that we cannot teach a, a good work ethic to our children only by talking. Like we gotta get them up off the couch. We gotta get them out there doing chores. We gotta get them out there in the sun and sweat. That's how you build a good work ethic. It's teaching and practice. Well, in that same kind of way in a principle, the understanding that obedience to God is a matter of life and death, and it is, that disobedience to God is a big deal. The only way we will teach that is yes by instruction with our words, but it is also by practice. Discipline has a way of internalizing so that we feel it in our hearts that disobedience is a big deal. Disobedience brings the displeasure of God. Now, with all of our talk about discipline, we have to bear in mind what this passage says as well. We're clearly told that we are to be careful in our discipline, not to discipline to an excessive degree, not to do so too often, not to do so harshly. And that if we do, we will exasperate children, which means this. 
We can actually push children to a place of bitterness against us. We can push children to a place of feeling unloved and unwanted. We can push them to a place of giving up. They can be pushed to a place where they decide they cannot be pleased, so why try? And they're not exactly logically thinking all these things through. These are just places that the heart goes in assumptions and presumptions and such. And the Bible tells us to be careful with these things. There are, there are a world of harms that can come to children when they are disciplined too harshly and are brought to exasperation. And let's be honest, many have used the Bible as an excuse for abuse. Many have used the Bible as an excuse to simply vent their frustration in their children. That's a real thing. Our discipline must be loving. It must be patiently corrective. Parents, the goal in discipline is not to execute some justice because I'm mad. The goal in discipline is loving correction. There's an end that we're trying to get to. And so speaking gently to our children and helping to explain where we're trying to get to is this end right here. It is correction and not simply execution of justice. We're to lovingly, gracefully, not irritably correct our children. Experience shows us that children have a need to be loved. They have a need to be delighted in. And, and sadly, watch what happens if you're involved in ministries with children is one of the things that just breaks our heart so much as we interact with children who it is very clear they are unwanted and unloved in their homes. And it has some toxic effects in their souls. The kinds of things that only the gospel can remedy. It has a tendency to produce bitterness, sour outlooks on life, which all means moms and dads. Let me, let me say a word to us dads. We come home from a day of work and we are tired and sometimes wanting maybe just to be left alone and be able to chill. But understand that how we speak to our children when we walk in that door matters. It matters. It matters how we interact with them. It matters how we express delight in our children as our father expresses love and delight to us. We are not unwanted in his eyes. We are adopted and embraced and accepted and loved by the blood of Christ. Well, thirdly here, instruction. It's another part of raising. The Bible in several places gives parents the command to teach their children the truths of God. This is one that we here in this church are so passionate about. We see it in Ephesians 6. It's, it's stated very briefly. But understand, the reason that it's brief is because God has already pretty exhaustively explained some of the how of how this is to happen. This is a way that it's brought to reminder and, and also a way that it is brought to the New Testament to show this is still a new covenant expectation. In places like Deuteronomy 6, fathers are given the command to talk with their children daily about the Lord and his truths. Mothers, you have a similar kind of expectation from God. Dads are given an extra heavy weight of responsibility because we are to ensure that it is happening but one of the things, one of the things I just want to communicate is, is just of all of the applications that I could just plead with you and beg to implement in your lives, it would come right here. This is just such an incredible difference maker. Think back to those 8,000 men who stood and how they came to faith in Christ. This is the most common way that God is winning souls to Christ. This is such a difference maker. In my own experience, as I've interacted with people and how they came to faith in, in Christ, I mean, it is multiplied times more effective when the gospel is being talked about and even formally instructed in the home. There is so much more impact, so much more weight that occurs. Dads, we got to make this happen. We got to make this happen. We are going to answer to God for how we did in this one right here. And it's going to be a big deal at the judgment. We got to make this happen. 
And I mean things that need cut out of our lives. If, if time is the issue, whatever we got to cut out to make it happen, that's what needs to happen. Listen to me. If we got to quit our current job and start flipping burgers in order to have time, then that's what we do. We got to make this happen. And we're going to answer to God for it. We are to intentionally and systematically teach our children the truths of God. And this can look different in different families. I mean, there are 40 different ways to make this happen. Uh, oftentimes I'll have conversations with dads who tell me, I don't feel like I know enough about the Bible. I'm not a teacher. That's not one of my gifts. Listen, regardless of where you are, you can still do this. You know, first of all, if there are, I don't know, 5,000 individual truths from the Bible we need to learn, even if you've only been a Christian for six months or a year, you, you know a hundred of them. Talk about the ones you know. A dad can call the family together and just say something as simple as, hey guys, mommy's gonna read a chapter of the Bible for us. A dad can set aside time with each of his children and say, come on, bud, let's take a walk. On the walk, he says, before you leave our home, there are just some subjects I gotta make sure that I have conversations with you about and systematically work through these things. And by the way, moms and dads, what are the topics we need to teach? What are those big truths? That's going to require incredible amount of time in the scriptures to see what are the heaviest truths? What are the greatest priorities of things we need to know? And then how am I going to teach those things? At what age do I think they need to have learned this set of things? At what age am I going to walk through this book with them or have this scary conversation with them? At what age are these things going to happen? This requires planning. This requires mental effort. But there's so many different ways to do this. A family can systematically read through books of the Bible together. A dad can pick out great books and read them to his children. For centuries, the book Pilgrim's Progress was read to children as a practice. Many different catechisms were designed for dads to teach their children these truths. At our house, we do a fair amount of, I find a great sermon on YouTube and I just click play for 15 minutes and we work through these great sermons. Sometimes sinners in the hands of an angry God with your kids. That'll scare them to Jesus, okay? Others, <laughs> Paul Washer's The Shocking Youth Message. Sometime listen to that. Find great, I mean, we, we just live, what a world we live in. What an age we live in. We can sit on our couch, eat Cheetos and listen to the greatest preaching on the planet just by clicking play. Set a timer for 15 minutes, make it happen. That is an amazing way to systematically work through these things. But it has a bigger effect than even just the truths we cover because what it is doing is instilling and internalizing this idea, we exist for God. We exist for him. Our lives are about the glory of God. That's why we breathe. And the only way to show those kinds of things is by daily Worship, it's more than just the individual truths that we will cover. It's the worldview and the perspective of my God is my delight and he is where my everlasting joy is. Somehow we got to make this happen. So much more that we could say on this subject, but I think the point has been made. Letter D, our method in this kind of taking the spirit to verse four. Our method is shepherding. Parents, we are not simply trying to get browbeat, forced obedience out of our children. We are trying to captivate their hearts with Christ so that they want him. So friends, what we pray for, what we work for is to be about helping their hearts to want what is good for them. That's what shepherding is. That's my job towards you. Shepherding is helping hearts want God. And because we're aiming for the heart, listen carefully, that means that there are some methods we might be able to employ that could work to get obedience, but it doesn't help them want Jesus. You know, there's no secret, Satan goes to work extra on Sunday mornings, the Lord's Day. He wants you in bed. He wants you playing on Facebook. He wants you running all over the place and he wants children fighting on Sunday mornings. But imagine a scenario where a family is pulling into the parking lot at church and let's say the kids have been extra rowdy that morning and let's imagine a father speaking to his kids and says, don't you embarrass me. 
He might get obedience, but that is not helping these children want the Jesus that they are there to see. Friends, the best gift that we can give to our children is the gospel, but there's a footnote attached to that in that the gospel doesn't seem very believable spoken from the lips of a hypocrite. Hypocrisy is one of the ugliest things on the planet. So parents, the best thing that we can give to our children, but a close second and even attached to that one is giving them the best version of ourselves the most godly, the most holy, beautiful in character version of ourselves. Moms and dads, when you read your Bible, you are serving your family. You are serving your family by seeking Christ to grow in him to greater holiness. Ungodliness hides the richness and beauty of the gospel. Like taking a diamond ring and putting it on the hoof of a pig and it walks around in the mud. The diamond's still valuable, but its beauty and its worth has been covered up by mud. Sometimes as parents, after some particular harshness or some way that we've sinned in front of our kids or some kind of hypocrisy, we may tell them about Jesus and we're, we're holding up a diamond, but we're holding up one that's been covered in mud. And your kid's going, yeah, right. Moms and dads, let's not stop progressing in holiness ourselves. Let's make it our ambition to show as much of the beauty of Christ as we're able to. Listen, he's beautiful. Our job is to try to show his beauty. Our job is to try to wash the mud off the diamond and show his beauty. We will help that by admitting our sins to our children. We will help that by apologizing to our kids when we have wronged them and we have sinned against them, by confessing our sins, maybe even when we pray out loud in front of them, confessing some of the sins that they have seen us do and letting it be known, I'm not just going to live in them. Daddy's a sinner too. Daddy's a struggling sinner too and I'm trying to follow Christ, but I want you to know that he is wonderful. Well, lastly, number three, let me give a word to children. Every parent just suddenly got a burst of energy. <laughs> Scripture calls you, children, to honor your father and your mother. Calls you to respect and obedience. So let me say a word first to you who are still under your parents' authority. There's, there's a word coming to the adults as well, but first a word to you who are under your parents' authority. This really is a major way that you honor God. For where you are right now in this season of life, this is a big deal in how you glorify him. And listen, your parents are sinners. If, if God gives you the blessing of marriage and family, whenever you get older, you're, you're going to find parenting's way harder than what you're thinking it is right now. I promise. Cut some slack. Forgive them a thousand times. And there are some appeals that even physically I'd like to make to your heart. Things like your parents cared for you when you were absolutely helpless. Your mama woke in the middle of the night and changed your diapers. You gave all manner of bodily fluids onto her body. You screamed in her ear and she sometimes woke up with tears because of exhaustion, but she held you, she loved you, loved you so much she would have given her life and still would now for you. Have some sympathy and affection. It does hurt them when you give disrespect to your parents. Sometimes children can kind of think that their parents are robots. They feel no pain, they feel no difficulty. What you may not know is your mother may cry at night because of pain given in disrespect and such. Your parents have loved you and cared for you. But then again, to some of you that I'm speaking to, maybe not. Maybe it is the fact that some of you in this room have had terrible parents, and that's not mean to say that's a reality. Maybe you did not have moms and dads who loved you. Maybe you have been wickedly treated. Maybe you have been harmed. God still calls you to honor them anyway. And you need to know some things like if you are being abused, if you are being wickedly mistreated, 
you are not dishonoring them by reporting them. It may actually be that's the only way they would come to repentance. But there is still a way to honor them. For most, honoring your father and your mother means obedience. For most, it means doing what they say. Yes, it really does happen that there are times where parents instruct their children to go do things that would break the law of God. And there is still even an honoring way to tell them, mom, dad, I want to respect you, but I cannot do this thing that you're asking. But again, most of the time, honoring them means obedience. It means obedience and it means doing so with respect because we all know it's possible to do something, but in a way that is not honoring. There's a, there's a tone of voice. There's a countenance of the face. There's this thing we've all done with our eyes where they nearly roll out of our heads that we can do that is a way of showing disrespect, but still to go through with the action, but honor God. I know that respect to your parents is a peculiar thing in this world, right? I know that whenever you are around your friends in the world, you see the way they speak to their parents like they're pathetic servants who just can't get their lattes right. You got to decide, do you want to be like them, like the world, Ugh. or do you want to honor God? Or do you want to be peculiar in this world? You're going to answer for how you do in this. For you who are no longer under your parents' authority, listen, the fifth commandment still applies. This is part of the genius of the Bible, by the way. Like when God gave that fifth commandment, he didn't just say obey, he said honor. And that part lasts for a lifetime. Even when we're no longer under our parents' authority, we are still to honor them. It looks different later in life, but the commands still exist. For instance, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 5 tells us that when your parents age, you are to return the care they gave to you. There is a way that we are to continue to honor them throughout life. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. Don't come away saying Pastor Josh says nursing homes are the devil. I don't believe that. And there are obviously blessings in, in many circumstances, but we also know this. Sometimes nursing homes become a way of getting rid of the inconvenience of aging family. And just as children are oftentimes treated as cattle, the aging are oftentimes treated worse. There is often the attitude of, won't you just hurry up and die? In Europe, euthanasia, even non-consenting euthanasia is regular life. Now, it appears it is making its way to here. God calls the Christian family to view all this very differently. God calls the Christian family to be a peculiar household in the world. God calls his children to honor him to imitate his fatherly love to our children. And then just one last word of application here. This is a massive calling. Friends, the role of the family is the forming of humans. What could take its place? I mean, what could be more significant? This is why we as the church, we will unapologetically encourage dads to at times maybe say no to promotions, not everyone, but maybe some that would take you away from your calling. This is why we will unapologetically encourage mothers to press pause on their careers or back off of hours during their child's development. This is just too important. If children are just cattle, then let them graze and make sure they stay alive. But if they're image bearers with eternal souls, then this matters. Then there's a kind of effort that is worth it. And if I can say something else kind of hard, Friends, in general, the church in America is just largely asleep. Just asleep. I'm not trying to be mean by saying that, but as we look at the general Christianity in America, it is largely asleep spiritually. It is alive to work and sports and hobbies, but spiritually asleep. The average churchgoer in our land is just flat not reading the Bible and so does not know what the Bible says in regard to the family. The average churchgoer in America is just not hearing but about a fraction of the church's teaching. And that includes in these matters. And one of the places where this spiritual sleep is most on display is what is happening in the Christian household. In so many church-going households, there is a passionate devotion to sports. 
but about zero concern for the salvation of souls. And so if I can just make a couple of appeals to you. The first one is this, moms and dads, consider the eternal state of your children. Who gives a crap about the trophy? You can't mention who won the Little League World Series three years ago and on the day of judgment, it will matter nothing. But your child will exist somewhere for eternity. Eternity. Feel the weight of that. Feel the weight of souls and eternity. And secondly, and I connect this to the whole series, where we are in regard to marriage, singleness, and family, it is a massive part of how you honor God. It's not a small thing. Our culture puts career, dreams, education above family. God does not. Where you are in your marriage, singleness, family situation is a massive part of how you glorify God with your life. So I make the appeal. Read, study, and meditate so that you equip yourselves to be the best version of yourselves for where you are in your state. If you are married, read, study, and meditate to grow in the knowledge and in obedience to the instructions of God, and it makes real and practical purpose. I'm just telling you that something simple as choosing one book on marriage a year, and we read it together, will have incredible effect on your marriage. If you are single, if you are an empty nester, if you are a grandparent, reading, studying, meditating, and looking into how you most leverage your life now to glorify God in this, in this place where you are. This is a massive part of life. And if you are a parent, we have not scratched the surface. The sheer amount of knowledge and truths that it takes to do this well is daunting. And we also have the principle of to whom much is given, much is required. We live in a time you can walk into a Christian bookstore and see shelves upon shelves of books on these topics. Only about half of them are worth reading, but they're there. The sermons are there available. Let's give ourselves. Let's give ourselves to training and make it a priority of our life. The first thing you will answer for at the judgment is the state of your own soul. You turn to Christ. You must be saved. You need the blood of Christ. Embrace him, cry out to him, and you'll be saved. You will answer for your spiritual formation, your holiness, and your obedience. But you will also answer for the souls that you are responsible for. Live and work so as to fare well on that day. Please pray with me. Oh God, I ask that you make us a church family that pleases you in this. I ask God that you'll make us a church family that the individual families in our congregation, we will orient our lives around you. Our time, our schedules, our budget, our affections, our thoughts will revolve around you. I pray that we will be God-glorifying families, Christ-centered families, gospel-saturated families, holy, obedient, useful, serving families. Please bless marriages. God, we know our enemy is right now planning the destruction of every marriage in this room. I ask, O oh God, that you will bring an obedience and a strength, O oh Lord, that will not allow that to happen, that instead there will be flourishing. I pray for the relationships between parents and children. I ask, O oh God, that you will give loving and gracious relationships of closeness and affection. And I pray, O oh God, that we, we will obey you in these things. I pray that family worship will increase. I ask God that households where it's not happening right now, I pray, oh God, that you will bring it to happen. Please, oh God, I pray that we will be faithful 
that we will raise up and train up our children to be generations of followers. Please put your blessing. If you do not work, then none of our efforts will matter. But we ask that you will. Please, oh God, be delighted to bless this church in these ways. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening, and we hope that this week's message titled Family Flourishing for the Glory of God has life-changing effects on your walk with the Lord. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.